it's kind of where we dig in and go deeper and uh, kind of has a scholastic feel to it. So welcome to Living Word University, where tuition and salvation are free. Um, an undergrad, I had a, a Bible survey professor. We had to take six hours of religion, regardless of your major. And uh, his name was Dr. Harvey, and it was our first test in class. And before we started, he said, avoid even the appearance of evil. But this is Living Word University, and so if you miss one of the fill-in-the-blank answers, you can look at your neighbor and ask, what did you write down? Okay. Uh, in seminary, in a Greek course, for the final, in seminary, before class, every class and before every test, we would actually pray, like the professors would lead us in prayer, which was really cool, I thought. So we were getting ready to take the final, and the professor did not open in prayer. And so one of the students, the guy in the class asked, he's like, a, Dr. Weaver, are we going to pray before we start this? And Dr. Weaver said, no. He said, Jesus knows his Greek. The question is, do you? And we were kind of waiting like, okay, now we're going to pray? No, he, he did not, no, he did not pray. But at Living Word University, there are no tests. So, other than the ones that life or God bring your way. And sometimes those tests can uh, really rattle us, uh, shake us to our core, cause a variety of emotions, um, confusion. You know, oftentimes the first thing that pops into our head is why? Or why me? Or why this? So your first fill-in-the-blank there that you will see is we may even find ourselves feeling resentment toward the blessings of fellow believers. And more often than not, the wicked. So fellow believers also, even though we would, not, would prefer not to have such feelings, we are human. And in our own suffering, when we see others, it just seems like, man, every time they turn around, God's blessing them. God's making a way for them. Wow, look at what they're driving. Oh, look at the promotion that they got on their job. Oh, look how their kids just sit so politely in church and say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and never throw a tantrum. I mean, it's just... It just goes down the list, and everyone else's pasture always looks so much greener, especially when ours is, feels like it's dying. And even the wicked, and that's even throughout the Psalms. You know, David and a number of psalmists would refer to that. You know, why do we see the wicked doing well? Asaph in Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3 and verse 17 he said, truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. So once he got into the presence of God, went in amongst the fellow believers, he was encouraged and he learned and realized, okay, the wicked do have an end, that it, though I may not see that now, he is a God of justice. Other things we might feel in the midst of our trials and tests, we could feel hurt 
by God? Why would God allow this to happen to me? This isn't who he says he is or who, what I read about him in the word or what I've heard about him through teaching and preaching. That hurt when it's unresolved can lead to bitterness or we can become bitter toward God as it sits there and festers and the trial that we end, if it, that we're in, if it's prolonged or if it's greatly severe. And ultimately that can lead to untrust, untrustworthy of God to the point where I don't even trust him anymore. I'm not even sure if he has my best interests in mind or at heart. I suspect someone left their device. <laughs> and that hurt, that bitterness, well, hallelujah. That untrustworthy feeling it just can, can just lead to that just a continual downward spiral into a very dark spiritual place, a dark mental place, a very dark emotional place. And all of that, ultimately, a dark physical place, even, because it all works together. In the 1990s, um, I'm going to date myself here, Indiana Bible College recorded a song called Trust His Heart. And the chorus was, God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. When you don't understand, when you can't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. And so that's what I'll be talking about tonight. Trust his heart through the good, the bad, and the ugly. In Hebrews 4 and 15 that we read, we can know, and you'll see this on your, work, on your handout also, we can know what God has done, just like Asaph knew what God had done for Israel, but not know his innermost feelings for us if we don't also know his heart for us. So let's look at Hebrews the text again more closely. We'll start with verse 14, actually, of chapter 4. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, verses 14 and 16. 16 goes, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those two verses concern faithfulness to the doctrine about God and our relationship with him. Where verse 14 says, let us hold fast our confession. That's the doctrine. Hold fast that, yes, Jesus came to earth, walked the earth as one of us, but was fully God died for our sins, rose again, ascended back to heaven, and he's coming back for us. He hasn't left us here to figure all this out on our own. There is a hope. Hold fast to that confession. In verse 16, let us therefore come boldly or, or with confidence. That's because of 
this relationship that we now have with him because we are in covenant with him. So on your next, the next line on your handout, Hebrews 14, 15 grounds or anchors verse 14. Because verse 15 starts with the word for, which can also be like because. So because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. This is why in verse 14, we can hold fast our confession and we can see that, yes, we do have this great high priest who has done this great thing for us. So verse 15 anchors Verse 14, the verse before it. Verse 15 also grounds or anchors verse 16, the verse that comes after it. Because it says, let us therefore come boldly. And as you've probably heard at some point in your church life, when you see therefore in scripture, you have to ask, what's it there for? So 15 grounds and anchors, verse 14 before it, and verse 16 after it. So we'll dig into that a little more closely. With verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In the King James, instead of sympathize, it, it says, who cannot be touched, which is probably how we might have memorized it when we first um, heard it or are most familiar with it. And for that expression there, cannot be touched, the Greek word there is sympathize, which in the literal Greek it means to emotion with, as if emotion is, is a verb. So on your blank you can put emotion with, or it also means suffer with. Don't worry, we're going somewhere with all this. Just getting the nuts and bolts out of the way first. The King James also refers to, instead of weaknesses, it'll say infirmities. And the Greek there literally means unfirmness, so not, not strong, not firm, which is how we get it translated to the word weaknesses. So now in our human thinking, we tend to feel like or, or express or say when things are going well, you know, when we get the new car, when we get the promotion, oh, God's just in my corner. God is with me. God has been on my side. But verse 15 puts another angle on that, another spin on it. And it says it's in our weaknesses that Jesus sympathizes with us that he's that close to us, closer still than even when we're in the highs, even than when we're on the mountains. He suffers with us. He feels what we're feeling. You know, it's not enough, for example, for the doctor to say, oh, you have a sinus infection. It's as if the doctor is saying, you have it and I feel it too. It's, it's to that extent, I'm suffering through this with you. Um, 
psychologists have discovered that through the power of story, Bishop, if I'm telling you a story about, for example, the accident that we had in Oklahoma, as I'm telling you that, your brain will pick up on what I am transmitting verbally and will start to show the same uh, wavelengths and patterns as my brain as I'm telling you that story. That's the power of, of story and of words, which is why testimony is so important and encouraging. Just think about what our witness can do for someone as we're telling them what God's done for us. So that's just what, what story does. But that's not just where Jesus stops. His brain doesn't just, oh yeah, I, f I understand what you're saying. No, he feels it. He feels it to his very core. Um, which, on a side note, is another reason why it's important to be careful of what music we're listening to. Because we can say, oh, I'm not really partaking of what the song's talking about. Yeah, but your brain is transmitting the emotion and the attitude of the lyrics that it's taking in. That was a side note. Um, so Jesus isn't just moved by what we experience, but he feels it and he experiences it with us. And it's not a threat to who he is, but it's a sign of how much he loves us. Amen. He's like, you know, you're not only going to perhaps feel the weight of this trial, but I'm gonna come in under it with you, and I'm gonna carry it too. And I'm gonna feel when it gets hard, when it gets heavy, when it's in the middle of the night and you wake up and you can't get back to sleep. I'm right there with you, I'm awake with you. I'm tired too. He's, he's feeling that with us. That's what the word says. So he's not just sitting over there like a psychologist counseling saying, oh yeah, tell me more about that. No, you don't have to. He knows. He knows. So why? Why is he close to us in suffering and, and how does that work? Because, what verse 15 says, he was in all points tempted and tried as we are in every respect. He's walked that same road of suffering that we're walking. He walks it with us. And so oftentimes when we're in trials and tests, we do feel alone. And we feel like no one's gone through this. No one knows what this is about. No one can relate. And sometimes we'll even start to kind of pull away because we feel so alone and that just exacerbates this feeling of aloneness that we have. But Psalm 46 and 1 reminds us, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And the psalmist didn't even know the Jesus of the new covenant, didn't even know what was to come or that he would be able to suffer with us. Elijah, even, when he was running from Jezebel because he feared for his life and he was done, he was throwing it in to the point of even... People have read, you know, it's as if he were in a state of depression. But God came to him and said, no, no, Elijah. There's still 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. You're not alone. The best example that I can give, even um, personally, having uh, experienced the loss of a spouse uh, prior 
to that, I had been serving as a chaplain and a grief education specialist, and I was leading grief support groups. It was during COVID, so it was over Zoom, um, this particular group, and it was mostly widows. And uh, after some of the restrictions with COVID lifted, you know, they said, can we get together? Can we go out to eat and spend some time together? Because they had grown close to one another, just seeing each other's faces, you know, in a box on a screen. So we arranged it, and um, my husband Dylan went with me, and so we spent time with them. We, we did that a couple of times and got to know each person, you know, in person. And so when Dylan suddenly passed away, uh, I, of course, stepped aside from leading the group for uh, about six weeks or eight. And when I came back, it was a totally different feel. They felt and were experiencing my pain, and now all of a sudden I had felt and was experiencing their pain. And I wasn't leading just out of education or seminars or, well, so-and-so said this about grief in their book. I could lead them from the same boat. We were paddling against the same current in the same waters. And it totally changed the, the dynamic of the group and made it that much closer and stronger. And that's what Jesus is for us. He's in our boat. He's not just, you know, like the lifeguard. If a lifeguard were to stay on the beach and you see someone drowning out there, hey, you're going under. Try the dog paddle. Okay, the breaststroke. What good is that? Right? No, Jesus, he's in the water with us. And he's with us right there beside us. Hey, I'm in this too, and we're going to get to the shore. Even though it doesn't seem like it's in sight, we're going to get there. Just relax, stop your fighting, and we'll get there. So our, our, our path is not, though it's unique to us, we are not alone on it. And it is not strange to him. He is familiar with it. Jesus was fully God and fully man. So he was perfectly divine and perfectly human. However, he was not what the Greeks would call an Adonis, a Greek god. He was not something lovely to look upon. He would not have made the GQ cover or Time's most eligible bachelor. And it might sound funny, but Isaiah 53 and 2 says, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. But as such, he knew what it was to not be the first person picked, but to be the first person picked on. He knew bullying. He knew grief. He knew resentment. He knew misinterpretation. He knew being misunderstood. He knew being picked last and, and not being promoted when he perhaps should have been. All that stuff that we experience in our lives. He knew hangry. Okay? It's just like the expression from the 90s. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. He could add, and got the scars. So he's with us in our suffering. To the one who's had the parent who was abusive, he's with us in that. To the one who's had the spouse who said, 
yeah, I said till death to his part, but I didn't sign up for this. He's with us in that. To the one who's had the spouse who says, I just don't love you anymore. He's with us in that. To the one who's had the teen who said, I can do this on my own. I don't need you anymore, mom and dad. I'll figure it out. I'm out of here. He's with us in that. In every single thing, he's with us and he's suffering with us. Not just beside us, but he's in it. and He's suffering with us. When the mechanic says, well, you may as well get a new car. And you're thinking, I don't have the budget for a new vehicle. He's with us in that. When the doctor says, well, it looks like stage four. He's with us in that. The doctor says, well, we don't even know in science how to treat this. He's with us in that, and he's feeling it. If I'm being redundant, it's because I'm being redundant. I'm making a point. Our pain, the next part on your, on your handout, our pain doesn't go further or deeper than where he is. It doesn't surpass him. He can, it's not to the point he can't reach it. No. It's right where he is. It's an old Southern Gospel song, The God on the Mountain is still God in the valley. When things go wrong, he'll make them right. The God of the good times is still God in the bad times. And the God of the day is the God in the night. So he doesn't just counsel us through it. He didn't say he came to counsel the brokenhearted, but he came to heal the brokenhearted. And this came as a revelation to me um, in my own time of uh, grieving prior to my moving here, uh, and I was reading Del Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Jesus for Sinners and Sufferers. And as I was trying to wrap my mind around this, I was reminded of a story that I'd, he I'd heard about um, an NBA team. And I'll, I'll start out by saying, I'm not a sports fan. I understand the general idea of most sports, the goal, and that's about it. So anything that I misapply uh, in this that I'm about to tell, my bad. I did go back and look into it so I could get some of the points straight. But it was in 2004. It was the Pacers versus the Pistons and they had a brawl at a home game for the Pistons in Detroit. And the Pacers were leading 97 to 82 with only 45 seconds left. So it was a double digit lead already. Um, the normal ticket holders by that point, they were so disgusted with their team, their home team, the Pistons, that they left. They started leaving the, the arena. Well then the other folks who were not regular ticket holders who were sitting up like you know, way up in the nosebleed section, well, they see all these empty seats opening up. What do you do? You move down, right? Get closer to the court. Well, during the game, the Pistons center, Ben Wallace, attempted a layup shot but was fouled from behind by the Pacers' small forward, Ron Artest. Were you impressed with that? Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> so when he fouled him, 
you know, of course, the Pistons guy, he gets all, you know, agitated about it. Now, when they were talking to the players well, well after the fact, they described it as this, the Pacers players. It was just a dust-up, just some pushing and shoving. It happens all the time. It's faked anger. We're friends off the court. Everybody knows that. The fans don't know it, but all the teams know it. And most of the time, no one in the NBA really wants to fight unless it's something really disrespectful. But the fans don't know that we're all really friends, and the crowd feeds off the players. So he you know, fouls on this guy. They kind of shove and push. Their team members run in, and you know, you've seen it, push them apart. And so then the referees are trying to decide, okay, how are we going to, you know, what's the penalty going to be for this? So the Pacers, the, uh, the guy who did the pushing, you know, he goes and he lays on the score table out in front of the people who are keeping score. He's waiting for them to decide what they're going to do, which kind of agitates the other team. But, you know, they're like, okay, whatever. Well, while he's laying down there, these rowdy folks from the nosebleed section who've come down closer to the court, someone lobs a drink at him, hits him right in the face. Well, that's a different story when stuff starts coming out of the, out of the crowd. So that Pacer player jumps up, goes into the crowd, and attacks who he thinks through the beverage. His teammate sees that he's getting hit on in the crowd, he immediately jumps into the crowd and goes to his defense. So now you've got basketball players in conflict with fans in the stands. And then when that starts, everything, everything is mayhem. The crowd starts coming down onto the court, everybody's fighting, it, it, was, it was a disaster. But in that, when they were interviewing these players, the one who went to defend his team member, his, his answer was, I saw what he was going through. He said, and when I'm with you, I'm with you. He said, just like when I was a kid and I was growing up on the streets, if my brother was in danger, I was there. And he said, I don't have to ask any questions. He said, I didn't even have to know what happened and why my team member was up, was up there in the stands. He's like, when I'm with you, I'm with you. And as I was reading this about God sympathizing with us, and I was trying to wrap my mind around it because it, it brought it out in a way I hadn't really heard it before. It was that voice as clear as day, when I'm with you, I'm with you. I don't have to ask any questions because I know exactly what you're feeling. You don't have to explain it to me. You don't have to ask me to come. I'm there, and I'm in it with you. I'm feeling it as you are, and I'm there to keep you and protect you, and we're going to get out of this together. Amen. God is so good. So even when we're having our best day, God's saying, I'm with you. When we're having our worst day, he's saying, I'm with you even more. In Psalm 139 and verse 8, it says, If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. 
I think it was in 20, it was 2022, um, we were here uh, in service, it was a Sunday morning, Ernie was in the sound booth and I was sitting back there with him and Brother Putnam uh, was here to speak and he opened his message relaying the story of how his wife had suffered um, a blood clot. And as he was telling the story of, of how she woke him up in the night and was letting him know something's wrong, I can't breathe, you need to call 911, I was standing back there because we were standing for him, waiting for him to read the text, and all of a sudden, the flood of emotions from my own loss came back like with a vengeance, just And I, I, I didn't know what to do or say, and all I did was just reach out, and I just grabbed and squeezed Ernie's hand, and I just stood there. And I knew he understood because he squeezed back, and I, I didn't have any words. I just knew everything he was saying was practically verbatim, and the emotions were coming. What, what I was feeling in that ER was all coming back. And in, in grief, uh, there's so many things that you experience, and those who have lost, anyone who's lost anything to that degree, you know exactly what I'm talking about, any loved one that you've lost. Um, you're grieving different things at different times. You can't grieve it all at once because your mental and physical bodies couldn't, could not uh, process that. And so at that moment I realized that I was having to grieve all the stuff I didn't have time to deal with in that ER room. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to get answers to questions and you're trying to understand what's going on and you don't have time to deal with all your emotions at the, at the time. You know, you're just trying to keep your head on straight and make the right decisions. Um, and it all came flooding back right there. And so I, I started working through that in those uh, weeks that followed. And uh, not long after that, Brother Bruce Pinner was in town and he was speaking on a Sunday morning. And he was speaking about wounds and scars. And as he spoke, he shared about you know how he at night, as he falls asleep, he's had so many surgeries that he'll just kind of trace his hands over the, the scars that he has, and remembering you know, what each one was caused by and how God helped him through it. And then he compared that to our emotional wounds and scars. And so when he had the altar call, and I came up and prayed, and I was carrying those, those ER emotions, that's the best way I can describe it, and as I was standing there praying and asking God to heal those, I knew he wouldn't take them away, but just to heal them. It's like God just put it in my heart. And I, sh I shared some of this with the ladies last night. Um, don't just, don't remember what happened to you, but what I did for you. And when I thought that, I was like, oh, not what happened to me, but what you did for me. How you sent people into my life that very night whom I didn't even know I could depend on. And the days and weeks and months that followed how you continued to do things and support me and people reaching out who I didn't even know had my number. And how you've taken care of me and brought me to this very place where I'm standing right here 
surrounded by people who love me. As I'm praying that, and, and Brother Pinner was praying with different people, and he came to me, and he started praying with me. And if it wasn't the second or third line he said, it was, Lord, don't just let her remember what happened to her, but what you did for her. And I knew then and there, there's no way that he could have known what I had just prayed. But God Almighty is in it. He's in it with me, and he's feeling it. And he knew exactly, exactly what I needed and how he needed to prove to me, I see you, I'm aware. And that's the same thing he is for all of us tonight. Whatever you're going through, maybe you're on the mountain right now. And that's a great place to be. But when the valley comes, remember, he's the God in the valley too. There's a quote that, there are a few quotes that whatever Bible I have, I write it, I write those quotes in the front of my Bible um, because they just ring true. And one of them I want to share with you tonight, it's by James Brian Smith. It says, it doesn't matter that God is all-powerful or all-knowing if he is not all good. If he isn't all good, I will never be able to love and trust him. And we can trust him with our souls. We've done that already. But we can also trust him with our hearts. The final verse is Exodus 3, verses 7 through 8. It says, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's what he has for all of us. He has things that are good and abundant and flowing with milk and honey. Amen. I pray this blessed you tonight and that you carry it with you. And when you need it again, pull it out. Let it be a source of strength for you. Amen. In Jesus' name, God bless you.